0: just want to set expectations this morning. Um, We've got seven verses and about halfway through the sermon, about 15 minutes into the sermon, we're still going to be in verse one. (laughs) It'd be a real pity if we got there and you started looking at your watches and being like, at this rate, we're going to be two hours. Um, What's going on? Just, I found a lot of meat in verse one that I do want to spend time in. We are going to get through it all and it's just going to be a bit disproportionate, and that's all right. This sermon's going to take a normal amount of time, whatever that is. um, (laughs) So just trust in that, and uh, don't get distracted by the pace of it. Um, So let's dig right into verse 1 right away. Uh, Now, in these days when the disciples were increasing in number... Let's pause there. The disciples here refers to all of the Christians, not just Jesus' immediate followers. Uh, This is before the word Christian, was a thing that will happen later in Acts. I really like that in Acts we get to kind of see this history unfold. But at the moment, um, they're not called Christians, they're just the disciples of Jesus. And in fact, it's a remarkable thing that we have at this stage such a distinctive church. Uh, There's such a clear distinction between the disciples of Jesus and the non-disciples, the non-Christians, even though no one's called Christians yet. Like these days, if someone becomes a Christian, we welcome them, of course, and celebrate, and you're welcome into Two thousand years of church history, yeah. of writings, of music, of habits, of culture that's been created that kind of immediately looks different to what else is going on in the world. Um, but here, on the other hand, in chapter six of Acts, there's no unique history, unique years of history, years of unique history to distinguish them from the people around them. They're all Jews. We're still in Jerusalem. Every Christian, as far as we know so far, is. A Jew Um, they're still Jews identifying as Jews because uh, the Jewish people were waiting for a prophesied Messiah Jesus and the distinction between uh, the non-disciples of Jesus and the disciples of Jesus is the disciples of Jesus know Jesus was and is that Messiah Jesus himself was a Jew and perfectly um, and he was that prophesied Messiah The disciples know who the Messiah is, that he died and rose again, and that he reigns eternally. So it seems um, on the surface that if that's the only difference between the disciples and the non disciples, that should really be the only thing distinguishing distinguishing them uh, is maybe something of their beliefs. But um, we actually see a greater distinction here by the power of the Holy Spirit. By the power of the Holy Spirit, this knowledge of Jesus has made the early church distinctive in other ways, like um, we see it in their generosity to each other. We saw in chapters 2 and 4 of Acts how they have everything in common. They're sharing everything with each other. We see it in their devotion to learn as much as they can about Jesus. We see it in their love for each other. Um, It's remarkable. What we see is a whole bunch of people saying, a diverse people even, and we'll get into that, saying this is our brotherhood and sisterhood now. Um, This is our family. In Jesus. Today, what makes us Christians? It's not that some of us come from Christian families, it's not that some of us went to Christian schools, or are pastors' kids, or missionary kids, or are really into Phil Wickham songs. It's only our belief in Jesus that makes us Christians. That's it. And so, if you're a non Christian here today or listening to the recording later on, um, and Christianity that looks like a weird ancient institution, or a dense, impenetrable culture that you can't imagine inserting yourself into. Uh, please know that the only meaningful distinction between a Christian and a non-Christian is a Christian knows a Christian depends on Jesus. Christians depend on Jesus. You can depend on him too. Phil Wickham songs can come later; they're not mandatory. All right. We are still in verse 1, let's continue. In these days when the, when the disciples were increasing in number and complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Hellenists and Hebrews. I do want to unpack that, little, unpack that a little bit more so we understand our place in history. We understand the uh, diversity of the people we are actually looking at. Because the Jewish people have been scattered throughout the world at times in history and formed communities wherever they have been scattered. Over time and over generations, uh, many of them returned to Judea and Jerusalem, where we are now, with new languages and something of the culture that they had picked up uh, abroad. Um, Others travel to Jerusalem to visit the temple where they can, but still find themselves at home in North Africa or in the Middle East or elsewhere in the Roman Empire. So, uh, back in chapter 2, when we read about Pentecost when we saw the Holy Spirit come down on all of the disciples and they were speaking in tongues loudly and the people outside kind of heard what was going on and were like, were confused at how they could speak in these languages, we see that uh, we have Jews from every nation. I'm going to actually read from verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2. Now they were dwelling in Jerusalem, Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, that is the sound of the disciples speaking in many tongues at the time of Pentecost, Um, At this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Jews from every nation, probably not the whole world, but uh, the whole known world at the time, um, miraculously hearing the disciples speak in their own native language. In chapter 2, we have Jews from parts of North Africa, Asia, much of the Roman Empire. and um, So it's really a diverse group there. So even though they had their own distinctly recognisable native languages, they also generally had a shared common language with which they could speak to other communities, people from other places in the world. And at this place in history, in this part of the Roman Empire, that was Greek. Greek was spoken by many people, and it was why the New Testament is all written in Greek. Um, I, can't, I don't actually know the Greek myself. It's not modern Greek. It's called, we call it Koine Greek, which just means common Greek, but it was the common Greek of the time. I'm getting distracted. But it's Greek. <laughs> and Hellenist just means Greekist. as a Greek speaker. And so here the Hellenists are the Greek-speaking Jews. It's referring to anyone who is out of town, from out of town, who Greek might not be their first language. For some of them it would be. But Greek was their common language with which they interacted with each other. And so Hellenist here refers to a variety of... Of minority groups of Jews within Jerusalem who often would gather together, keep in communities with each other. They might have uh, Greek speaking synagogues, they might even have synagogues specific to their own um, culture that, from where they're from elsewhere in the world. These are the Hellenists. The Hebrews refer to the local majority in Jerusalem. And of course, the Hebrews speak Hebrew? Aramaic. Okay. That's right. <laughs> Sorry about that. (laughs) Almost all of the Old Testament is written in Hebrew. Um, And then in the very recent history before the New Testament, um, Aramaic became the common language of the area. The uh, people of Judah picked up Aramaic as kind of their native language. And by this time, that's what they're speaking. They're speaking Aramaic. Uh, Jesus spoke Aramaic. The disciples spoke Aramaic. The early church would have largely been held in Aramaic. in Jerusalem at least. And so the Hebrews here refers to the local majority and the Hellenists refers to a variety of local minorities who have some, th- some things in common um, but are distinct from the local majority, the Hebrews. And uh, the reason I kind of go into depth here is because I think the presence of the Hellenists, these diverse minorities, in a Hebrew-dominated church I can show us something interesting. Minorities often stay in community, community with each other. We see it today as well, right? Like, um, there are church services here in Perth held entirely in Korean. Our church website is uh, perthchurch.com.au, but if you accidentally go to perthchurch.org.au, you will find yourself at Perth Korean Presbyterian Church. The webpage is entirely in Korean as far as I know. I can't read Korean, but I'm just putting two and two together. Um, LAUGHTER and the, the services probably are as well. Isn't it awesome that there's a large enough community here in Perth that will be served in that way that they can run whole services where people can come together in an English speaking country and say we'd rather you know we're more comfortable in Korean. We our community um, enjoys each other in Korean and we can build each other up in Korean. It's a wonderful thing. And so local minorities like sticking together and we see that uh, back then as well. In chapter 6, verse 9, which is a little bit after what we're reading today, but it's what we're skipping over next week, so I will uh, point to it now. We see mention of the synagogue of the Freedmen and of the Cyrenians and of the Alexandrians and of those from Cilicia and Asia. I'm just making up pronunciations when I don't know them. (laughs) Jerusalem had Hellenistic communities with Hellenistic synagogues and perhaps even synagogues for specific communities within those. Minorities with like backgrounds sticking together. And so doesn't that make that all the more interesting here that we have a conflict between the Hellenists in the early church and the Hebrews. The reason we can have this conflict at all is because they're in community together. And the reason this conflict happens at all is because they're not used to being in community together. So I think that's a wonderful thing that they have something so important in common. This is why they're getting together. These are my brothers and sisters. These are the ones with whom we have everything in common. Is really the ones in whom we have only one thing in common, and that is Jesus. Have you experienced that today? Have you experienced a unique unity with your fellow Christian who you'd otherwise never get to spend time with in day-to-day life? We meet people of different life stages, different interests, different careers, different cultural backgrounds, um, and go, hey, what's God doing in your life? Can we pray together? That's been my experience anyway, Um, in my experience of walking into a church in Fiji, in South Africa, or Canada, or Zambia, or Singapore, I find a commonality with people that is far more important than anything else we might have shared, that we are saved by Jesus. And even here in Perth, in KC, we have some diversity that might otherwise keep us from normally crossing paths, but we are united in Jesus It could be cultural diversity, it could be our line of work, it could even be our hobbies. We have non-surfers hanging out with surfers. Yeah, right? Gamers hanging out with non-gamers. Men and women, married and single, working and between jobs, young and old and with very differing opinions of what young and old actually means. But we can stand side by side praising the same Jesus, empowered by the same Holy Spirit, by the will of the same Heavenly Father. How good is that? We have in common a faith in Jesus' resurrection, an awareness of our own need for God's grace, and the freedom of knowing we are already justified before God. We have in common the lifelong privilege of having the Holy Spirit, that is God himself, working in us, sanctifying us, and making us more like Jesus. We have in common the whole Word of God, the Bible, with all of its wisdom, history, instruction, and eternal hope for the future. Throughout our lives, we Christians need comfort that only a fellow believer can give. We need wisdom that only a fellow believer can share. And we need prayer upon prayer upon prayer that only a fellow believer can offer. If you can't find your people, the people with the same cultural background as you or interests, the same lifestyle or stage of life, can I encourage you to delight in the very different people from all walks of life that God has put around you? When Jesus is your king, all of his people across the world are your people too. But on the other hand, perhaps you feel you have found your people outside the church. They just don't know Jesus. Maybe they share your hobby or your work or your life experiences and they share your aspirations. They can swap stories with you. They get it in a way that your brothers and sisters in Christ don't get it. Can I encourage you to continue to love those people and enjoy those people and do so intentionally and courageously? Share with them your love for Jesus and let them see that Jesus makes you who you are. Show them your desire for them to know Jesus too, and pray for them that they will come to know Jesus and be even more your people. Wouldn't that be awesome? And while you're at it, also find brothers and sisters in Christ who may not be your people in the same way, but who can know you and pray for you and walk alongside you as you mature in Christ. For someone who loves Jesus, there's no substitute for a friend who also loves Jesus. I know for a fact that it's not impossible for a Christian in the church to still feel isolated. We'll see later on as we continue through the passage that the church is an imperfect institution full of imperfect people and sometimes those imperfections align themselves such that We are lonely. We are isolated. We don't really feel like we have our people. If you feel isolated today, I'd love for you to talk to someone about it. And I'd love for you to pray about it. Pray that the Holy Spirit helps you out of that isolation. May He give you a surprise connection or the boldness to step out of your comfort zone and open up to someone. And may you have your people in church to their good, to your good, and to the glory of God. Amen. All right, back to Acts. Um, we have a growing church, filled with the Holy Spirit. That means God is at work in the church, softening hearts, opening ears, giving the words to say, giving courage, healing miraculously, and so on. We know that the Holy Spirit is at work in individuals to grow in knowledge and adoring Jesus, in knowing and adoring Jesus, even as they do so imperfectly. Uh, and we see here that the Holy Spirit is at work in the whole church to grow in numbers, grow maturity as Christians, grow in effectiveness in loving others as God commanded, even as the church does so imperfectly. And I say imperfectly because here we see neglect. The Hellenists, the Greek-speaking minorities, see that their widows are neglected in the daily distribution, that is, the, the sharing of everything that they have in common. Um... <clears throat> The Hellenist widows are neglected, and so the Hellenists raise a complaint against the Hebrews, the majority, presumably the ones in charge. Now, the Greek here for complaint is usually not actually for a complaint, more for a quiet grumbling. Um, this probably wasn't someone putting up their hand and saying, hey, did you know the Hellenist widows aren't getting their fair share? Um, instead, it might, have been, it might be better to understand that increasing numbers of people were impacted by this neglect, and aware of this neglect, and uh, sharing their concerns with this neglect to each other, um, just kind of hoping that things will change eventually. I mean, for all we know, maybe they were doing something meaningful here, uh, caring for each other more privately, but this neglect was a problem in the function of the church. The church intended there would be no such neglect, and the church wasn't getting it right. Those responsible for that function just seem to have no idea anything's wrong. Now, I don't get the sense that we're grumblers here, um, but it is something to think about. My experience of King's Cross is that when we speak about each other, we honour each other, and people who have concerns raise them graciously. May we continue in that going forward. But you might also note that by definition, I wouldn't know if something wasn't raised with the leadership because I'm part of the leadership here. So maybe there is stuff going on, stewing beneath the surface. Please let us know, and let's talk about it. Let's find a solution together. But in Acts, praise God, the grumbling bubbles up, even though it's not a, a proper conversation happening in the beginning, it bubbles up until it finds its way to the apostles. Oh, good. Now something can be done. This is their church, after all. They'll fix this, right? 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 verse 2, it is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables, say the apostles. It's not right that we should give up preaching to serve tables. All right, so just to be really clear here, the apostles are not above serving tables. It's not what they're saying at all. They're not serving, saying that serving tables is unimportant either. Um, we will see how they value it in the resolution of this issue. They're using All their capacity to serve in a way that God has called them specifically to do, preaching the word of God and praying. And this is how they serve. Even if they're not serving tables, they're serving uh, people with the word. And serve is such a wonderful word here, actually, because I think it captures so much. To serve someone voluntarily is an act of love. How can I benefit you? Serving is an act of humility. You are valuable. And worthy of my time. Serving is uh, a way to follow Jesus in His footsteps as well, according to Philippians two, which says from verse six: Though He, Jesus, was in the form of God, He did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied Himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. Jesus taking the form of a servant, and so Paul, who wrote to the Philippian church here, uh, gives an example. To say that the church should do the same thing, counting others more significant than themselves and looking to the interests of others. Jesus himself served his disciples, the very apostles we see leading the church here in Jerusalem in Acts, to teach them to lead by serving. We read about it last year in Luke 22 from verse 24. A dispute also arose among them, that's the disciples as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he, Jesus, said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I... Among you as the one who serves. Jesus, though the greatest, by a long shot, came to serve. So if church leadership isn't serving, it has no place in church. If church leadership isn't serving, it has no place in the church. And so preaching mustn't be self glorifying, but it must be for the good of those who'll hear it. I pray it is today leading worship or a community group or a ministry team should all be for the good of others. Whatever hierarchies of authority we put in place in a church should be as servants pursuing the good of those we are leading. May God humble us if we're not. And So the apostles here aren't holding their position, lording their position over others when they decline to serve tables and feed the widows themselves. They're inviting others to serve in this way so that they can continue To serve in the way they were called at full capacity. Verse 3: Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. Pick seven men, and the apostles will appoint them to make sure the widows are taken care of. Um, This is the church's job, the whole church's job, not just a church. Um, This is all of Christendom, really, uh, gathering together in this moment as a very rare opportunity in history. The whole church exists within Jerusalem and they gather all the disciples, probably not everyone, but representative of everyone. But um, they, rather than the apostles, are going to pick the seven men for this duty and those seven men will fulfill this duty. And they agree this is a good plan and they pick their guys. Now, I love the picture of ownership here. Do you know what I mean by ownership? The the apostles aren't even choosing themselves, it's the church's job. Um, the whole church is made aware of the problem, the whole church is included in resolving the problem, and the whole church is taking responsibility for the widows being provided for, ultimately. And that's what I mean by ownership. This isn't just the church of the apostles with problems for the apostles to solve and needs for the apostles to meet. This is the church of the seven men picked here, Stephen, Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, my pronunciation's not any better than my I'm sorry, um, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. Um, This is the church of all the disciples in Jerusalem who gathered together and prayed about it and thought about it and nominated these seven This is the church of the widows whose needs weren't being met and have no material wealth of their own, but who will share in Jesus' inheritance because they believe in him. This is their church, all of theirs. For them to serve and to love and to participate in however the Holy Spirit would have them participate. What does this mean for us? It doesn't mean that we have to gather the whole church for every decision that needs to be made. But it does serve as a reminder that church is ideally not something that happens and that you might attend it's something that we all make happen all of us in one way or another church is a diverse united people serving each other to know Jesus better and make him known to all church is a diverse united people serving each other to know Jesus better and make him known to all. I didn't pull this out of nowhere. We see it in Jesus' great commandments to love God and love your neighbor. Church must teach us to know God better and love him more. And what better way to love our neighbor than to show them Jesus? We also see it in Jesus' great commission to make disciples of all nations. Church is for making disciples. And praise God, that's what he's been doing. This has been my experience of King's Cross too, a culture of serving each other, to love each other, to help each other, and to disciple each other in Jesus. And actually, at times, I haven't realized how true this is of King's Cross. Um, I was in a conversation a couple of years ago with some of the KC leadership. This was before I was on any of the KC leadership, I think, Um, certainly before I was an elder. And uh, we were talking about what is this church's DNA? What makes KC, KC? And it came up that uh, serving was a big part of KC's DNA. Serving in various ministries is a big part of the church culture here. But I pushed back. It seemed to me that KC's ministry teams are always looking for more people to help. Surely, I thought, if our ministry teams are always stretched and always needing more help, doesn't that mean not enough people are putting up their hands to serve? But Anna was there and she knew better. You could almost just leave it there. Um, <laughs> Anna was there and she knew better because she said she was involved with um, making sure anyone who uh, wanted to serve could serve, anyone who could serve would serve um, if they were up for it. And she said that basically everyone who had capacity to serve was serving. I mistakenly thought that a true culture of serving would mean that the church's needs were met effortlessly. I thought that if everyone was serving in some way, the, I guess, burden of making church happen would be spread so thinly that it's almost like there's no burden on any of us at all. But the reality is that there's always more that can be done to meaningfully bless each other and meaningfully serve each other. Always. So if it's effortless, we're probably not actually doing much. We could probably always use more kids' leaders, more people setting up, more people on sound and media and coffee and worship, and that's okay. Because praise God, church happens. Praise God. Consistently. And pretty much everyone is making church happen. It happens because we set things up and tear things down and plug things in and practice and prepare and percolate and PowerPoint um, and so on. Is that alright? <laughs> And I say we, but I don't do most of those things. I don't have to. We serve in such varied ways, in many ways, actively to make Sunday morning happen. And it's not just to make Sunday morning happen either. We give each other lifts, we bring each other meals, we help each other, we support each other, we provide for each other. There are so many tangible and relational ways we can follow Jesus' example of service outside of a Sunday morning as well. So I do believe we have a culture of serving here at King's Cross. Praise God. And as things change, so will our capacities. So do our roles. Spoiler alert for next week. Stephen won't be serving widows much longer. He's the first martyr, for those who don't know. Later on, Philip will leave Jerusalem. Both of these are changes to the glory of God. Not changes to the glory of God, but changes that happen to the glory of God. So if you're stretched thin and need some relief, please talk about it with your ministry leader. Talk about it with us. And if you have capacity to serve, or even if you don't have capacity but you have a desire to serve, I want to see where you can get in on this privilege, because it is a privilege to serve as Jesus served. Let's talk. Let's serve together. All right, I've talked a lot about what we do as people who make up the church. It's about time we get to verse 6. There, They set before the apostles. These they set before the apostles, sorry. These seven men were set before the apostles and they prayed and laid their hands on them. The apostles prayed and laid, laid their hands on them. The laying on of hands isn't just a formal commissioning. It is to ask for God's help. I said that church happens because we make it happen, but unless God makes it happen, it's not happening. <laughs> unless God build the church, builds the church, we build it in vain. And so the apostles, in appointing these leaders to help with the daily distribution, so the Hellenist widows are not neglected, they lay their hands on these leaders and pray. And we don't know exactly what they prayed. But we do know from seeing what they've prayed elsewhere, and from seeing what the church looks like at this stage, they are utterly dependent on God for their efforts to be effective. In chapter 2, we saw the Holy Spirit, that is God, empower the apostles and disciples in a transformative way. And then Peter, still full of the Spirit, preached an awesome sermon, and some 3,000 people became disciples of Jesus. Wow. Last week in chapter 4, we heard them pray, Sovereign Lord, keep doing miraculous things, and help us to speak your word. And we see that he did. And we've skipped over chapter 5, where we see miraculous healings, and an angel bust the apostles out of prison and tell them to immediately continue preaching in the temple. Get back out there. (laughs) This doesn't happen without the Holy Spirit. This doesn't happen without God. And so they commissioned these seven into service with prayer. God, please use them. Help them empower their service for the good of your people and the glory of your name. Amen. Even today, church doesn't happen without the Holy Spirit. Good, even if imperfect, church won't happen unless the Holy Spirit is at work here. Our serving will be ineffective. Our teaching will be wrong or fall on deaf ears or both. If it is wrong, may it fall on deaf ears. Um, Without the Holy Spirit at work, no one realises they need Jesus. And so that's why I say praise God when I talk about the distinctiveness of the very early church. That's why I say praise God when I talk about the unity that diverse people find in Jesus. And that's why I say praise God when I talk about our culture of serving. It's not praise KC. Praise God that we serve. That's God at work. May we continue to do it well. If church is a diverse, united people, serving each other to know Jesus better and to not make him known to all, it takes the power of God himself to make church happen. Praise God is happening here. May God empower us and our church all the more. King's Cross... May God help us to grow in unity with each other and our brothers and sisters across the world. May God help us to serve each other willingly, gladly, proactively, in both formal and informal ways, desiring each other's good and desiring that God will be glorified in all that we do. And King's Cross, may God help us to know Jesus better and to make Jesus known to all the world. May the outcome of all of this be just as we see in verse 7, and the word of God continued to increase and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly. May that be what we see in Perth, in Subiaco, wherever we live. That the word of God increases, the number of disciples multiplies greatly because of God's work, in our glad service to his glory. I'm going to pray and then I'll hand over to Josh to lead us in communion.